Uh, I have uh, appreciated Carl and Lowell and Greg preaching for me the last three weeks, but I've got to tell you, I've missed preaching, so I've got, a, I've got like three weeks I'm trying to make up this morning, so I don't know if you've got plans for after church, but you might want to text and say it's going to be a while because I've got three weeks into... No, I'm just kidding. Actually, I talk so fast that I could get three sermons into one, and so we'll all be good this morning. Uh, years and years ago, we had some friends here at the church who were struggling with their oldest son. He began to make a lot of decisions in life and choices that began to spiral his life into a completely opposite direction of anything that either his parents or God would hope for him. And so start with certain things like a lot of fighting, not only just inside his house, but a lot of fighting outside of his house. And then he began stealing things, and then he began to involve himself with alcohol and uh, developed all sorts of substance abuse and those sorts of things. And along the way, the parents tried a lot of different things. They sent him off. Uh, to another state to enter into rehab to kind of deal with some of the substance abuse issues that were going on in his life. I remember one evening I got a phone call. They lived around uh, the, the street from us. I got a phone call that their son was inside the house threatening to kill himself. And so they wanted to know if I could come over and talk to him or just kind of... So I remember walking in and he was sitting in the hallway between their kitchen and kind of their living room and he, he was just weeping and just had a big knife, big old kitchen knife in his hand pointed towards his gut as I gingerly approached and hoped, oh dear God, please let him give me this knife. And he did. Uh, along the way though, because of some of his life choices, uh, they, he was uh, arrested and sent to the JJC downtown. And... Uh, once there, I remember visiting him and spending time with his mom and dad and having those sorts of conversations. But what was interesting to me was the response of the mother, who was our friend, because she was absolutely out of her mind, panic-struck about the idea of her son being in JJC and incarcerated, that she began to act, I don't know if crazy is the right word, because, I mean, she was rational, she had thoughts, but this is what I saw. I saw a mother who was doing everything she could to get her son out of that situation. Like, she began calling the judge, wanting to set appointments to meet with him, sending him letters. She got an attorney. And, I mean, just I remember just the panic and just all the things she was trying to think through and brainstorm of how do I get my son out of this situation. And just as their friend and pastor, I have to be honest with you, in my mind, I thought, no, this could be the best thing for him that he's here. I mean, this could be finally that place where maybe he recognizes that life choices actually have consequences, and this is what are some of those consequences. Maybe he'll hit rock bottom at a point where he'll change everything in life. I mean, it's just in my mind, I thought, I would not be so crazed to get him out of here, but she couldn't hear that or see any of that. All she knew was her son was in JJC incarcerated, and it killed her to see her son not enjoy freedom, and she had to get him out, and she had to do whatever she could. I mean, I'm convinced she would have gladly changed places with him just to get out of the situation for him. What I saw was a sort of compassion coming out of her, and not, not a sense of, oh, my poor kid, he's not doing okay, but a compassion that goes so deep, you could see it and I mean, it just goes to the deepest part of you. And let me give you, I want to share a word with you. It's a, it's a Greek word this morning, and it's a strong word. It's splachnizomai, which you kind of have to spit halfway through the word when you say it. Splachnizomai. And if you want to say it, you can. You're more than welcome to. But in the Greek, this is what splachnizomai means. It means compassion. What it literally means is to be moved in the bowels, which I don't know how we want to interpret that nowadays. But I don't know if you have ever felt that sort of compassion. More than just, oh, that's a shame, or I feel sorry, but it hurts you and moves you to your core, to the most vulnerable places, to those places where you, it is gut-wrenching. Has anyone ever had that kind of compassion? This is what I think I saw in this mother who, it didn't matter what rationality you could offer her in terms of why this might be a good situation, she had splachnizomai for her son and had to do something. Another word that's sometimes connected with this Greek word is, is the womb, which makes sense to me, especially if any of you women have ever experienced miscarriage, 
there is an emotion and there is a pain and there is a sadness that gets connected in that experience that I'm telling you no dude can step into. They just can't. I mean, it's not that as a dude you can't be sympathetic or sad or disappointed. I remember even our own life experience with Kelly and I. Uh, we had such a couple bad years. 1997 was such a bad year for us. Lots of conflict and drama here at this church at the time. And then we entered 1998 and found out that our oldest son was diagnosed with kidney cancer. And I mean, he was, he's good and he's fine. But I mean, it was just tragic years. So when we entered in 1999, I just thought, God, we just deserve a good year. So let's just let this be a good year. And we entered into 1999 with my wife was uh, uh, pregnant with our second child. So we're like, let's go. And then just a few weeks into January, all of a sudden she started bleeding. And then by the end of the week, we had, she had miscarried. And I remember, you know, even in that situation, feeling sad and very disappointed and just kind of all those sorts of emotions. But it was nothing compared to what Kelly was feeling. And I remember, I don't, I don't think I can even enter into that. And so even when well-meaning doctors or others try to come and tell you, I know this is sad, I know this is not good news, but it probably is the body's way of taking care of that this child could have all sorts of problems or deformities, and it's just kind of nature's way. I mean, but for Kelly, none of those things mattered. All she knew was this baby that was in her womb that she was caring for, that she was connected to, was now gone. And it was just a splachnizomai experience deep at the very core of your being. And so in that, with whether it's through miscarriage or watching uh, this mother deal with the fact that her son was in JJC, it is this idea that it is compassion that moves you to the most inner, deepest parts. We see this often in the ministry of Jesus. Let me tell you, one place is in Matthew chapter 9. It says in verse 35 and 36, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, like this is Jesus, he sees the crowds, he had compassion, splachnizomai. Not just a, oh, these people look sad, or oh, these people look bad. But there's something that's happening in the heart of Jesus when he sees the crowds that it moves him in his most inner being. It pains him. It is gut-wrenching. It is the splachnizomai because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. My question this morning for us is I wonder if this is how God feels about us. What if that intensity and passion that I saw in my friend for her son who was in the JJC and the passion a mother has for the baby in the womb is the exact same passion and intensity that God has for you? What if when he sees you, what if when he thinks of you, what comes to his heart is splachnizomai? That we say often here, God is crazy in love with you, right? We say that phrase, God is crazy in love with you. And sometimes I we say it so much that it becomes trite or flippant or that we don't really explain what we mean. But when I say that God is crazy in love with you, I wonder if he might not have some of those same reactions as my friend who it seems to me like she has cast all rationality out at the moment and is acting crazy. Not in like a mentally off, but what if God, so full of passion and love for you, is splachnizomai, if he is so crazy in love with you, not that he's mentally stepped off or not that he's lost his rational capabilities. It just simply means at his inner core, he so longs for you that his splachnizomai causes him to do extraordinary things for you, crazy love kind of things, that anyone else who were standing around God would say to him, God, really, I mean, 
I know this is a bad situation, but she totally did this to herself. I mean, don't you see that she did this and she made this choice and she's getting what it is that she deserves? Or listen, I know that he's in a rough spot right now, but when you put together all the things in his life, this is the spot that you land in. And, and God, it just might be just let him. But God, hearing all that, dismisses it with a, I don't care what it is that he deserves. Maybe he says to himself, even knowing they totally deserve that, he says, I don't care. I love them so much that I don't want them to have what they deserve that I'm so moved in heart and bowels or whatever by such intense love. They're my children. They belong to me. I've got hopes for them, dreams for them, purposes for them, blessings for them, and I don't care if they don't deserve it. I don't care if they haven't even earned it. And this, my friends, is what we call grace. It is undeserved, and it is unmerited favor. And it is by far the most radical Christian concept there is because I'm telling you, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It, it truly, it is, it makes no rational sense. In fact, I would say no other religion on the face of the earth has at its center this doctrine of grace. That every other world religion has sort of a works-based assumption behind it that says things like, you do this or believe this and then you get this reward. It's cause and effect. Do these things, believe these things, and then you'll get whatever it is, heaven, nirvana, you fill in the blank. But at the core of Christianity is the doctrine of grace that says, you suck. And like, it's really bad kind. Like you have so royally messed up that you don't deserve anything and you are so screwed up, you aren't even capable of doing anything that could get you out of the state that you're in. But God is so crazy in love with you, so compassionate towards you, he feels splachnizomai towards you, he isn't even going to let you stop his intervention of grace. That God looks at karma in our life and he trumps it with grace. He says, not for my child, I have something better. Several months ago, there was a, a, an interview done with uh, Bono from U2. I don't know if you, uh, like, I'm a big U2 fan. But anyhow, uh, Bono, they did an interview just kind of talking about his beliefs and kind of some things he thought about Christianity. And he was talking about this idea of grace versus karma and how he thinks grace trumps karma. And so this is a part of the interview. The interviewer asks him, I think I'm beginning to understand religion because I have started acting and thinking like a father. What, what do you make of that? To which Bono says, Yes, I think that's normal. It's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma, to which the interviewer says, I haven't heard you talk about that. Bono goes on, he says, I really believe we've moved out of the realm of karma into one of grace. The interviewer says, that doesn't make it any clearer to me. So Bono says, you see... At the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, or in physical law, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. The interviewer says, well, I'd be interested in hearing that. Bono says, that's between me and God. But I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep, and then he says an expletive. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. And see, this is the good news of Jesus, that grace trumps karma. 
that God burns with such passion for you, he will do something so crazy as to sacrifice his one and only son for you. And because Jesus shares the same heart and the same mind as the Father, he's willing to do it. That God is going to take on himself all of your crap and all of my crap onto himself. He can't bear to watch the weight of it in your life and what, and he wants, and what it's doing to you that he wants to take it on himself. And I mean all of it. The affair, the addiction, the abortion, the apathy, the anger. And that's just the A's. I mean, we can go all the way through the alphabet. You... You name a sin, listen to me. God wants to take all of that on himself because he is splachnizomite towards you and he can't bear to see you in that condition. And so just think of the worst thing you've ever done. Just think of the worst thing that you've ever done. Now, turn to your neighbor and tell him what it... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, don't do it. I'm just kidding. See, it's that thing that you know, oh, I wouldn't say this out loud to anybody. God's grace trumps even that. It, It can't stand against God's grace. God's grace overpowers. And see, splachnizomai is what causes God to have that kind of a heart where he understands. And, and I get why it's difficult for us because it's one thing for the preacher to get up and talk about grace and, oh, yeah, fine sermon and kind of somehow lodges in the mind, but it has a hard time making from the head to the heart. And that God's grace is difficult to comprehend to really, I mean, first it's so irrational and difficult to explain. I mean, just really, there's a challenge of being a preacher trying to talk about God's grace because it's so irrational at times. And I understand sometimes it's hard for us because the economy of grace doesn't make any sense and at times even seems offensive. Like, let me put it this way in terms of a story. There was a farmer who owned a lot of land, about 100 different acres, and, and part of the land was wooded. And so he had kind of all these trees and vegetation and brush. Well, just in conversation with his wife, what they wanted to do was clear away a path to kind of have a walking trail and kind of a, a scenic little nature hike. And so they were going to do that. They were going to carve out paths and stuff like that in the, in the wooded area. And he knew he needed help to do so. So one morning he takes his truck and he goes downtown to the unemployment office, and there he finds people who are looking for work. He needs about five strong men who he could bring back to help him in this venture. So when he shows up, he says, I'm willing to pay for 12 hours of labor, $100. It's $100 for somebody. And so five guys immediately jump in the back of his truck and they take off. So they get back to the farm. He's got all the instruments and tools that they need. And they begin to, to, to chop through the brush and the trees and all those. And just it's very soon that the farmer realizes we are never going to get done. We need more help. Like it's just so thick and it's just overgrown. We're going to need some more help. So he leaves them there working. He goes back into town and grabs three more laborers and comes back. And they begin the exact same process. About four or five hours later, he gets back in the truck, goes back downtown to get a few more. And so all day long, after about three or four hours, he just recognizes in order for us to get this done, I just need more help. So at the end of the day, he's got these crew of guys who've been there. Some start at the very beginning of the day. Some are only there for like an hour. So the guys who are there for an hour show up to get paid, and those who are there first watch as the farmer pulls out of his wallet a $100 bill and hands it over to the guys who only got who only worked for like an hour. Now inside, the guys who've been there all day are like, oh, if he's given them $100, I bet we're going to, like he'll give us way more than that because we've been here all day. I mean, we have worked hard all day. But sure enough, the farmer with every group that kept coming in all the way to the very end, he kept giving all of them $100, even the ones who were there all day. And so those guys who were there all day were just upset, and they were hacked off, and they start complaining. And the farm, I mean, listen to me. Did you not agree to work for $100 for 12 hours of labor? I mean, have I been unfair with you? Did I lie to you? Did I not come through with it? No, no, but I mean, it's just not fair that you, I mean, and in the, the farmer makes the argument that, listen, I have been fair with you, and if I want to be generous with others, it's my right to do so because it's my money. Now, this is a paraphrase of a story Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 20 of that exact same concept, and it's offensive, isn't it? Like, when you just read the story, you think to yourself, no, it really is unfair. I mean, 
that those guys got the exact same amount as the first ones did who've been working all day. There's something in us that in the economy of grace is offended by that concept. Everybody but you know who? You know the only people are that are not offended by that? The guys who work for an hour. Because that's how grace works. When it's bent towards us, we have no complaint. When it gets bent towards other, something in us that kind of goes, ooh, this seems unfair, this doesn't seem reasonable, this doesn't seem right. And so that kind of comes out of us. And so at the workplace, so you botch up that project that really did cost the company big time, like serious money, when the boss forgives you and gives you another chance, there's no complaint in you for that, right? That's just grace. But all your coworkers are thinking to themselves, I can't believe nothing happened to that guy. I mean, he is such a moron. We should, I mean, right? That's how grace works. When you get out of some debt that you owe because of a technical loophole, for you, because grace has been bent towards you, it's like, whoo for everyone around you, they might be thinking, oh, that's so unfair. That's how grace tends to work. And I know Jesus himself totally understands there is an offense that could be had in the midst of grace. And that's why he keeps telling stories. In fact, he tells another story. It's in Luke chapter 15 when, when he recognizes that line is blurred and so why it's hard for us to get grace in our heart and in our mind. He tells a story about two boys that has a father. There's two sons and a father. And one day the youngest son comes up to the father and says, I wish you were dead. I mean, he doesn't say just like that. What he actually asks, asks for is his inheritance now. But in the day, it's almost unheard of, and it would be like saying, I wish you were dead. But the father doesn't have to, but the father gives the son his inheritance. And instead of investing it wisely or doing good things with it, what the young son does is he takes off, he blows it on wild parties and wild living and all those sorts of things until he lost everything, all his friends, all of his money. The next thing you know, he's feeding pigs. And he's watching the food that he's feeding the pigs, and he's thinking to himself in his desperate situation, I'm so hungry, even the food I'm feeding these pigs look delicious. Now, I know for us, being around pigs sounds kind of dirty, and, but, you know, they're bacon, so in the end, that's all good. But if, you're, but if you're Jewish, this story is even more shocking that a Jew would be feeding pigs and looking at the pigs with any sort of jealousy. Finally, the young son says to himself, well... I'm going to try to go back home, obviously not as a son because I've totally blown that, but I know my father at least takes care of his servants. Maybe I could go back as a servant. At least I'll have a roof over my head and something to eat. So the young son goes back to his father. And all the way, he's making a speech. Like He prepares this speech for his dad. It's full of, you know, I'm sorry, I've just offended you and God, and I'm such a rubbing. It's this whole, I'm a worm, I'm a wretch, that he's going to deliver to his father. And this is what it says, Jesus tells in Luke 15, verse 20. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. You know what the Greek word is here? Splachnizomai. And because of that, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. See, this young son has this whole speech prepared. I'm so sorry, I've offended you, I've sinned against you and against heaven. And all the father knows is my son, who I have splachnizomai for, who I have this compassion for, who I love, who I've longed to see for years, has finally come home. And so what happens is Jesus is telling us, I know it seems crazy, and I know it seems offensive, because if this father were to share with any other neighbors, hey, my son is home, I'd like to throw a party, they would think to themselves, are you nuts? You remember that boy of yours that did this to you and that to you and did this? and that? I mean, but he didn't care about any of that, because his story is filtered through his heart of great compassion and love, that splachnizomai. So when he sees his son, it's not an arms folded, 
It's not a come and twist my arm to forgive you. It's not a speech of, I told you so. What did I tell you was going to happen? I mean, you might experience that on your earthly relationships, but with our Father in heaven, He doesn't have any of that. His heart so longs to be connected to you in relationship. He so longs to overcome whatever it is that you have done so you could be in relationship again, that what He feels is splachnizomai, that when you turn to God, He doesn't give you the cold shoulder. He doesn't give you the I told you so speech. What He does is He puts His arms around you, He kisses you, and He wants to have a party. This is what the heart of God is like. This is what it means to walk in His grace. What's interesting, then, the young son gives his speech that he's been practicing. And you know what the father does? He ignores it. Doesn't even respond to it. Dismisses it and moves right on to, somebody killed the fatted calf. Somebody give me my ring and a robe. My son who is lost has now been found. In order to live in the freedom of God's grace, we have to see it from his point of view from his heart of compassion, from his splachnizomai. And this is why I think this is so important. I mean, let me just ask you this. Do you think God likes you? Like, honestly, just, just in your own mind. Answer, I mean, do you think God likes you? And no, I'm not asking do you think he loves you, because I think we kind of tend to do that, well, he's God, so he's got to love everybody. It's kind of like your parents, right? I mean, well, he's my parents, so they got to love me, but I'm not sure right now they like me. Now, if you are a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> now, I mean, but does God like you? Because I have a sneaky suspicion for a lot of people in this room this morning, they don't think God likes them at all. I mean, he might love them because he's eternal God and he's got to do that, but I mean, he doesn't like, doesn't like you. And in your mind, what you're picturing is if you were sitting in a room just having a one-on-one conversation with God, what he's saying to you is, I'm so disappointed that this has happened in your life and I'm so upset with you for this and I'm so angry with you. And that's, that's the conversation. And that might be one of the reasons why our prayer life is tanking because you don't, nobody enjoys talking to somebody that you know doesn't like you, right? It's awkward. I mean, if you believe God doesn't like you, you won't spend much time talking to him because, because of that reality. But what Jesus tells us out of Luke 15 is, that's not God's heart towards you at all. Like, if he sits down one-on-one with you, it isn't to tell you how disappointed he is or how upset he is or how hacked off he is that you did this. And, and then, like, we picture him pulling out some sort of list of all of our sins and reading them off to us. My guess is he would want to hug your neck and to kiss you and say, it is time to celebrate. That this seems to me to be the heart of God because of his grace and his compassion, his plaknizomai. This is what Jesus tells us in Luke 15, verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who, spent, who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. And what I'm hoping this morning is you'll hear that it will, that will move from your mind and go to your heart that God is crazy in love with you. In the same sort of way that I saw reflected in my friend, there is a craziness about God's compassion as it burns, tr- burns towards you. And because of that, he is extending to you grace. His love compels him to. And there's nothing you have ever said. And this, listen, there's nothing you've ever said or that you've ever done that can overpower his grace. Nothing. And at the same time, we need to know this. There's nothing you can do, nothing you can say, and nothing you can believe, nothing you can perform that will ever earn God's grace. It is entirely undeserved, entirely unmerited. So when those voices in your head go, yeah, but I mean, if he knew really what we did yesterday or what happened in my life this past year or the, the sin I committed in this way, I mean, eh, I, see, when you hear those voices, listen, God knows all of that, and it doesn't matter. He has compassion for you. I mentioned earlier that Christianity is the only religion in the world that's centered on this doctrine of grace. 
And as I was talking about kind of that, you know, you do this, you believe this, then you get this reward. In your mind, you might have been thinking, I thought that was Christianity because the way I heard it growing up in church was you did have to do this, and you did have to believe this, and then you finally got that, and there was a cause and effect. And I think the reason why that is is because we have complicated in our confusion grace. In my mind, I really do believe if everyone truly understood Christianity in the light of God's grace, they would choose it over any other world religion because no one in the end would want karma in their life versus grace. But the problem is the church which is the primary expression of Christianity on the earth, hasn't done a very good job living and demonstrating grace. It just hasn't. And for most of us, we're trying to overcome and over, you know, this, what we heard growing up in the church and this picture mentality that had never, had nothing to do with grace. And so we've attached our own to-dos. You have to do this, you have to do that, you've got to believe these things, perform this ritual, and then God will love and accept you. And that's not grace at all. I mean, imagine that with your children. Right? I mean, just picture that with your children. So I've got three kids, Isaac, Caleb, and I. I mean, picture me having a family meeting one day, calling them into the living room and saying, okay, I want you three to know, if you guys will work really hard doing your chores, right? We've got the little chore chart on the refrigerator. If you will do those sorts of things, if you'll do all of your homework, if you'll study hard, if you'll get good grades, if you'll obey your mother and I, I, your father, am going to love you. I mean, here's what's not going to happen. They're not going to brighten up big old smiles. Dad, this is the best news we've ever heard. Because that's not good news at all. Right? That's not good news. In fact, that's bad news. Especially if you're my middle child. I think that could be really be bad news. And so, but that's what we've said Christianity is all about. Like somehow with God, if we do this, if we believe this, if we act this way and do these sorts of things, then God will love us. But that's not grace. Grace is saying to my kids, there's absolutely nothing you could ever do or ever say that will ever change that I love you and want to be in relationship with you always. Nothing. And I still want you to get good grades. I still want to do the chore chart. I mean, not so that I will love you, but because I love you and because of my grace. And see, this is the message of grace. It, is, it doesn't begin with, if we do these things, God will accept us. It is, no, God already accepts you through Jesus because of right? Because there's compassion for you. And out of those things, and every time we kind of talk about it in church, what, I, what you get usually is the qualifiers, right? It's like, well, before we make such a radical case for grace, I mean, let's not get carried away because you can't have people thinking they could do whatever they want and God's okay with it and nothing's going to be any consequence. I mean, right? So there are arguments about cheap grace. You want to add qualifiers. Well, what about baptism? When does that come in? So, I mean, but listen to me. Anything plus grace is not grace. Grace stands all on its own. It is grace, period. You have nothing else to offer God. But the early church had to wrestle with this because they struggled too. And so let me, let me close by telling you back to the earliest. It goes back to Acts chapter 15 is where I'll be here in just a second. But the early church had to wrestle with this idea of really, we don't, it's not about what we do. It's not what we believe. It's not the rituals we perform. And so what you have in the early church, it begins primarily uh, from the Jewish circles, right, out of Judaism. So the earliest disciples are all Jewish. They all have that background and ethnicity. And then what happens is by Acts chapter 10, there's a guy named Cornelius that the Holy Spirit and gets into Christianity, but he's not Jewish. He's a Gentile. And then God sends apostles out to the Gentiles, and they begin to believe in Jesus and receive the good things from Jesus. And there's a huge controversy that breaks out in the church because the Jews have grown up their entire lives believing that for God to love you and to accept you, you had to keep the law. You had to observe the things of the law. And there are like 600 laws that they were always trying to keep, and they didn't really do a good job themselves, but they're very law-based, performance-based. And so what happens is the controversy broke out in terms of, can these Gentiles really come into Jesus without going through the law of Moses? 
And what they wanted is circumcision. So picture that new members class in the first century. You got Gentiles sitting at the table, and let's talk about the church and how you get to be a part. And, oh, did we mention surgery? That's also a part of becoming right. They're thinking, I'm out. There's got to be a better religion than this one, right? <laughs> this is where all the guys are sitting out in the car while all the women and children are in because they don't want anything to do with Christianity. But that's what they thought, right? Not only do you have to go through circumcision, but you've got to observe the laws of Moses and all the dietary codes and those sorts of things. So they had this huge conference and meeting, because churches have to have meetings. And so they have one in Acts chapter 15 where they get together to have this conversation. Do Gentiles need to follow through our path of Judaism to be Christians? And so this is what happens. Verse, chapter 15, it starts in verse 5. It says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up. Now, they're Christians, but they belong to the Jewish party of the Pharisees. And they said this. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met to consider this question. So they're debating it. And after much discussion, then Peter gets up. And he addresses them saying this, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and then and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do, you, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? I think this is what Peter says is, we're not even good at following the law. I mean, even as Jews, we and our fathers have never been good at following the law. And now we're going to put that on them? But he goes on, verse 11 says this, no. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. What's Peter saying? It's not about rituals. It's not about believing the right things, doing the right things. It's not about keeping the law. It's purely by grace. We've got nothing in our hands to offer God. It is totally undeserved. It is totally unmerited. And still, because of his compassion and love for us, because of his mercy towards us, he extended us his kindness. So others were at the table too. Another one was James. James was a big-time leader at the council here and probably the most prominent leader in uh, the church in Jerusalem. And James is also, James is also who? Do you know? It's Jesus' little brother, which is interesting to me. Just imagine what it must have been like for James to grow up as Jesus' little brother, right? I mean, how tragic would that be? How many times did he hear, why can't you be more like your big brother? I mean, I, I guess I had to hear that all the time, right? Finally, James, who's a prominent leader, he, he listens to the debate, and he stands up, and he has something to say. And this is what he says in verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And I, I, I'm struck by that phrase. Let's not make it difficult. What he's trying to say is God loves those Gentiles that he's calling them to ourselves, and we can mess this up by making it so complicated and difficult. We could put on our own to-dos and our own expectations and our own lists. And what he says is, Let's together agree we're not going to make this difficult. As I thought about that, I think, I think that's what's happened in the church. Like what began as a movement of grace that was transforming because it was true grace 2,000 years later has so many to-dos and lists and performance-based things attached to it that we have missed. It's become difficult. And we have a dream here at the Living Stones Church that we get to see 42,500 people who live in the zip codes of 46613, 46614, accept and say yes to the grace of Jesus. And I think we should just collectively agree, let's not make that difficult for them, right? And then beyond us, we want to send out other churches to the east side, to the west side, to the north side, all over the place. We're going to take over the world. It might take us some time. But as people are turning to Jesus and saying yes, we just shouldn't make it difficult for them. 
that we want here there to be a message of, like, of true God is crazy in love with you grace because we think that is a thing that actually has the power to transform. And so in that, that will mean things for us. I know some, it will get complicated and it will get a little messy and it will be a little kind of don't know what to do because it will be a church where all the screwed up people will show up to. And that will be good news for us because we'll feel like we're in like company because you guys are all screwed up. And in that, I know what will take place is, because normally the route is this, right? In most churches, it's if you believe this and you behave this way, then you get to belong. That, that's kind of the order, usually. But when you watch the ministry of Jesus, he doesn't do that at all. He never interviews Peter and says, what do you think about me in terms of being the Messiah? Do you believe that yet? And what about behavior? How, how are you doing in terms of that anger management stuff? Are you okay with that? No. What does he do? He just says, I want you to come follow me. I mean, he gives them belonging like that. He doesn't even give them, a, doesn't even give them an interview. I mean, he just kind of, he calls, he gives all of them belonging. And do you know why he does this? Because he knows when Jesus extends belonging to somebody, what will change will become beliefs and behavior. Peter, because he belongs to Jesus, will change his beliefs, and he will change his behavior. And it has to be in that order that we extend to people belonging, because knowing when that takes place, then true behavior and true beliefs can have an opportunity to change. And we just see it all the time in Jesus' ministry. I mean, his chief criticism that he always gets is, he hangs out with people that nobody else wants to hang out with because they're sinners, they're prostitutes, they're tax collectors, and he loves them. And they loved him. Like what's so amazing to me about the ministry of Jesus is people who really are far away from God feel so comfortable being in the room with Jesus. Now think church people, think about this for a moment. Like is this your life experience? Like you belong to God and the things of God and people who are far from God feel comfortable like you guys could hang out together. That's what we need to be. And so in that, we want to be that church that we go after those people that no other church really wants. Like, they might not say that out loud, but deep down, that's really how they feel. Because we think that's the ministry of Jesus and what he's doing, that he would hang out with them, and thus, so should we. This morning, what I want you to know is God is crazy in love with you. Because he has splachnizomai. It's that compassion for you that he feels down in your most inner being. And for you, it's just, just to receive it. Because once you receive it, you will find true freedom there. Let me close. This is what Titus says in Titus chapter 3. Beginning in verse 3, he says, At one time, we too were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. It is all about grace. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and thank you that you are a God who felt such compassion for us that even when we were a long way off, you ran towards us. And rather than giving us the speech that we know we deserved or the treatment we know we deserved, you decided rather to give us a hug and to kiss us and to call for a celebration at a party. And this morning we acknowledge we don't deserve that. We haven't earned that. We've got nothing in our hands that we can bring to you. The only thing that we have is the reality that because of our faith in Jesus, we're clinging on to his cross. And so we're grateful, Lord, that you are a God who is crazy in love with us. And because of that, you have done far more in even ways that aren't even really for us rationally understood 
to call us back into relationship. And so we give you thanks for that. And I also ask, Lord, this morning that there's somebody here who's yet to receive your grace, that this morning might be that time when they finally decide to say yes to you and to receive that. So, Father, we just pray you would embolden us now that we would be a people who are full of grace and when we walk out of here, we will treat people in a manner that reflects the grace we've received as we extend it to others. We want this for your glory and the one who sits at your right hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're about to take up our tithes and offerings, so they're going to pa- pass out the trays here, and this is where your connection card goes as well. While they're doing that, uh, let me share with you some things that are going to go on uh, in the next couple of weeks in terms of message series. Uh, you know the phrase, the, I'm just saying, you ever hear that? Like, I'm just saying. People say it all the time. Like, it's like, it gives you permission to say whatever you want, no matter how offensive, and you just go, I'm just saying, right? That's kind of what... Um, the next two weeks, we're going to have a message series entitled, I'm Just Saying, uh, because we do think it's important that we figure out how do you speak truth and love and put them together in a way, because it's essential to our life together, and so we're going to have two weeks of a series called, I'm Just Saying, so bring some friends, we're going to talk about how do you have those truthful conversations that can be difficult, but also need to be loving, and so I think it'll be good. And then the next two weeks, we're going to have another message series entitled, The Table, and it's just going to be a theology of communion, because... Uh, I think probably the questions we get more than anything else here at the Livingstones Church is questions about communion because, you know, everybody's got their own experiences and different backgrounds and how they've done it. And so communion is always a question in terms of, like, why do you do it like this and what about this and those sorts of things. So we're just going to take two weeks to just talk about a theology of communion. And in that one, I think the first week, we want to try to – has anyone ever done a Jewish Seder meal during the Passover? Anyone ever experienced that together? Um, I think the first week we want to try to do that as a church. So it's going to be a challenge for us, but we want to bring in all the little elements of the Seder meal so we can kind of better understand what Jesus is doing at the Last Supper and tie that into the larger story and narrative of rescue. But I think it's going to be a great time. We're going to spend two weeks on that. So that's, that's where we're headed over the next month. I think it's going to be really good. So I hope you'll be looking forward to that and even be challenged to bring a friend because I think they'll enjoy that as well. But uh, I'm just saying, and the table is next. Let's stand together, and we're going to have a final blessing here, an invitation to prayer, and then I hope you have a phenomenal Fourth of July weekend. Isn't it great to be a part of a church where you can just come and and be who you are and know that God embraces you, and as a church, we embrace you too. If you came here this morning with something to celebrate or maybe you don't feel like celebrating at all, maybe you've got a lot of on your heart and mind or, or you've just got some things you want to pray about, we don't want you to leave this morning without coming forward, and we'll be glad to, to take some time and pray with you and celebrate with you. And... Uh, just let you know that uh, we love you as much as, as God does, or we try anyway. I uh, hope everybody has a great uh, Fourth of July weekend. Pray with me, please. Father, we're just so grateful this morning that um, we could hear the message of grace and to know that you love us no matter what, and no, no matter who or no matter where we've been, you're there for us. Father, we pray that as we go here that we can celebrate in that and celebrate the freedom we have in your son, Jesus. Amen. Have a great day.